You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Good evening. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for your word and for the way you bring to us uh, the revelation of your son, Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, even through your written, written word, through Holy Scripture. And we ask now that you would open up our hearts to your word and your word to our hearts, and that above all, you would give us that glorious vision of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, um, seated at the right hand of the Father, coming at the last day with glory, and that you would continue to root and ground us in the hope that we have in him. And so we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. On the night before his crucifixion, we know that Jesus told his first disciples, if the word world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. A servant is not greater than his master. And again, he said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. We might think that these words of Jesus were fulfilled mostly in the early centuries, the first centuries of the church. But did you know that there were more Christian martyrs in the 20th century than there were in all the previous centuries of church history combined? Even right now, all around the globe, there are many countries where Christians are actively persecuted. You might immediately think of the Muslim countries in the Middle East, but there are also incredibly dangerous places, especially in Africa, places like Somalia, Sudan, and Eritrea, places where Muslim extremists can persecute their Christian neighbors with impunity. You might remember that China forbids any unauthorized churches to gather, but did you know that radical Buddhism, what a strange phrase, radical Buddhism is on the rise in countries like Vietnam, Laos, Bhutan, Sri Lanka, and Myanmar. Christians in these societies are discriminated against. They are in danger of losing their livelihood, their homes. They are bullied, denied economic resources. They fall into poverty because of their faith. They are excluded from participating in society. Today, Christians in North Korea what an interesting place North Korea is. Christians in North Korea are afraid even to witness to their own young children out of fear that their children would intentionally or unintentionally betray their parents' illegal faith because they've been brainwashed by the state propaganda. Discovery for Christians often means decades in prison or labor camps, very often resulting in their death. This is the state of the church throughout the world. This is where so many Christians um, are, are having their faith tested right now. And we could say that we feel far from them, that that feels like a distant reality for us. But the truth is that as the tide of vibrant Bible-based Christianity recedes in the West, the persecution of Christians increases, 
even uh, in Europe, we could say. Just one example among many, five years ago in 2013, or 2012 actually, um, but the, the court rulings were handed down in 2013, there were two women who lost their jobs in England because they wore a cross to work. And they were fired, um, and then they took their employers to court. And the British courts decided that it was not illegal for their employers to fire them for wearing a symbol of their faith. Um, they, they appealed. They went to the European uh, courts of human, human justice, human, um, I forget the exact name of the court, and they appealed. One of them won and one of them lost. But still, that mild persecution is not the same as what's going on in the rest of the world, and yet it's deeply disturbing, isn't it? Because it's a little too close to home if it's happening in England. Well, it might be hard to imagine that this kind of discrimination could possibly come to, per- to Birmingham. But this trend in England has already shown up in the bigger cities in the United States and in American culture on our coasts. We have to ask and wonder, what will life be like for our grandchildren or our great-grandchildren? Well, in our lesson for this evening, as we begin this study on Peter's first letter, the Apostle Peter addresses Christians who are beginning just very, at the very beginning, beginning to suffer for their faith in Jesus Christ. In his benediction, at the beginning of the letter, which we read tonight, Peter, Peter observes that his hearers have been grieved by various trials. Though we might not yet experience wide-scale persecution for our faith in Jesus Christ, it's likely that we too are grieved by various trials. We could say that all Christians experience suffering on some level. Indeed, we could even say, of course, all human beings experience suffering of some kind at some point in their lives. Um, Peter's word then to those first Christians reaches out to us across the centuries to strengthen our own hearts today when we find that all is not as it should be in our lives. And so, not to be a Debbie Downer, but I bet you that every one of us in this room are probably suffering in some capacity, no matter how limited. And it's helpful to identify this. Sometimes if I'm hurting and I ignore it and try to grin and bear it and um, work through it, if I say, well, it's not that bad, um, it's actually counterproductive. Sometimes acknowledging that we're in pain is the first step to addressing it and being able to persevere in the midst of it. I could... I feel like I could preach an entire sermon on the potential causes of suffering in our lives, so I'll try to be brief. But I do think it's important to focus on um, some of the possibilities, to look at some of the possibilities for why we might suffer as Christians. A couple of categories of suffering uh, are right here. I would say, essentially, as Christians, we might experience suffering, um, first and foremost, I think, as the consequence of our own sinful actions or our misaligned priorities. Um, For example, we might experience credit card debt because we are mysteriously addicted to buying things that we don't need. You might say to yourself, why did I put that in my shopping cart? And then I went to another website and they knew it was in my shopping cart and I just said, oh, okay, I'll buy it. And suddenly you find yourself owning things you don't need and owing debts you don't have the ability to pay. So again, we experience suffering when we are experiencing the consequences of our own sinful actions. 
Also, even as Christians, um, and especially as Christians, as we seek to resist our sinful desires, uh, we experience suffering. Our flesh does not like to be denied, does it? And so the exercising of a godly self-control can at times have the experience of suffering. It feels the same way as if someone was um, uh, inflicting pain upon us from outside us. I'd also add another category to this. Um, We experience suffering because of our own selves, yes, but we also experience innocent suffering because of the sin of other people. A horrific example of this would be the kind of lifelong suffering. Very often it's lifelong. I wish it weren't. But the kind of lifelong suffering endured by those who have been the victim of a crime committed against them when they were a child. Or an everyday example for the rest of us. An everyday example would be the way that the inherent selfishness of a roommate or a spouse has direct consequences on our own lives. We suffer in some ways, on some level, at some degree, because of the sin of other people. And of course, the persecution of Christians is the uttermost sin um, against the church. It's the uttermost kind of suffering that Christians could experience because of the sin of other people. And finally, I would say we suffer sometimes for no seeming reason at all, for seemingly no reason at all, um, or except for the fact that we live in a fallen world tainted by evil. I like to put all sorts of things under this category, the, the kind of things that we can't um, explain and we'd like to understand better, but we'll just have to ask God when we see him face to face. We suffer because of tornadoes or hurricanes like we saw last year. We suffer, I like to say, because of tooth decay. I'll never forget um, sitting in the doctor's office, the dentist's office as a child, and trying to walk my way through the drilling of a cavity by counting the number of ceiling tiles above my head or trying to count the number of dental instruments that were actually in my mouth. Um, I hate going to the dentist. Tooth decay is a result of the fall. I also would put blood-sucking insects under that category as well. In this category, also, we would find many illnesses. Not all illnesses. Some are directly caused by our own sin, but many of the illnesses that plague us as Christians. Why do I list all of these kinds of suffering? I list them because no matter what the cause of our suffering, whether we are being persecuted outwardly for our faith or whether we are suffering because of our own sin or because of some kind of random occurrence within this fallen world, the call for the Christian is the same. The call to persevere is the same no matter what has caused our suffering. And the first step in this perseverance, as we see all throughout Scripture, involves forgiveness. Scripture is clear that we must, above all, seek forgiveness from God for ourselves, and then also we must seek um, for God to give us the grace to forgive others when they hurt us. It's sometimes hard to distinguish between this. Um, I often have found that it can be tempting to blame some of my own suffering on those around me. But I've learned the hard way, and Lord willing, I won't have to learn again and again and again, but I just might. Um, But I've learned the hard way that I must always start by looking within and taking a fearless moral inventory and repenting. 
About nine years ago now, I was recently ordained, and I had received a call to go and plant a church in western Massachusetts. I was very proud of the fact that I had this wonderful graduate degree, and I had made it through the ordination process by the grace of God, and I felt like great things were in store for me. I had received a call to go and work with a group of Christians in Amherst, Massachusetts, which was a really cool town, really cool college town, and I was very excited about that. And of course, I needed to find a day job because they weren't going to pay me. So I was looking for a day job, and I had known about day jobs when I was an actor. So I was very disappointed to have to work, find a day job, but this felt like the right thing just the same. I had looked everywhere, and still, for, after three months of looking for a job, I couldn't find one. And so I, I buckled down and I said yes to a job at a coffee shop where I worked for minimum, a, minimum wage um, and I probably was involved in the most intense physical labor that I'd ever been involved in. I've worked a lot of food service jobs, but this one was really intense and it was incredibly humbling. I had entered the job thinking that I would be this wonderful Christian who would bear witness to the love of God and all of these pagans, and yes, they were pagans, they were not just um, non-Christians, they had never ever been to church and they were involved in all sorts of really questionable moral activity and all sorts of really questionable spiritual activity um, that was completely pagan. And so I thought, I will bear witness to the love of God in the way I work in this place, the way I work in this restaurant. And I had been promised that if I was a good girl and I kind of learned the ropes, I would get promoted and I would be able to become a barista after about three months. Well, three months passed, and it didn't happen, and my pride just increased. I didn't recognize it at the time, but it took, it's probably taken nine years to be able to identify it. Um, but I was so humbled by being asked by an 18-year-old girl, now in my 30s at this point, to go and clean the bathroom. In fact, being told by her because she was my supervisor. And you could just, I, I was, I would just have steam radiating out of my ears. I was so angry the whole time that I was in that job. I felt like my suffering was the result of other people. It was all their fault that I was passed over for this promotion, which was really only 50 cents an hour extra. But I thought that if I just had that, everything would be wonderful, and that it was all their fault that I didn't have that. I was a terrible witness. I was insufferably proud and deeply resented my circumstances. And thankfully, the Lord got me out of there before I did any more damage to the witness that I was trying to have for him. I thought that my suffering was the result of other people, but it was really probably my own fault. And so I'd say that when we begin to look at our suffering and we ask God um, what's going on, when we are in the midst of any um, mess of painful conflict, I think that it's very healthy to start out by being deeply doubtful of our own blamelessness. We must look within first. Once we've done that, if we're able to say that our suffering is in fact caused by the sin of others, then the next call for us is the call to forgive them. We know this, don't we, as Christians? It's all throughout Scripture. Forgive us our trespasses, even as we forgive those who trespass against us. In the Gospels, we know Jesus tells Peter to forgive his brother 70 times 7. And Jesus himself embodies this forgiveness as he prays for those who crucified him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgiveness is not a work that we can do on our own. It is only something that God does in our hearts by the grace of God. 
And forgiving will give us the grace to, free, to be free from bitterness and resentment. So we seek God's forgiveness for ourselves. We ask him to give us the grace to forgive others. But then in the midst of whatever trying circumstances that we find ourselves in, we must put our whole trust in God. This is what Peter talks about. Peter acknowledges this painful process of suffering and trusting in the midst of suffering, even as Peter points to the glorious outcome of this trial in this life. Because as a Christian, there is a glorious outcome. Our suffering has meaning and purpose. Peter assures those first hearers of his letter that they undergo various trials that test their faith. Why? So that their faith will be strengthened and that their faith will be made more genuine by the grace of God. In this assurance, Peter borrows an image from the Old Testament to illustrate both the present experience of trial and the future results of the test. In order to make metals even more precious, craftsmen know to put them in a fire that will be hot enough to burn off all impurities. Malachi describes the Lord as a refiner and purifier of silver who makes his people holy even as he is holy. The prophet Zechariah also identifies suffering as God's testing or his refining of silver or gold in order to create for himself a people of his own possession. God is like a refiner's fire. Not many people know this, but I started out, chem- I started out college as a chemistry major, which if you know me at all is just hilarious. Um, in high school, I really loved chemistry, but I loved all the abstract aspects of chemistry. I loved imagining the patterns of electrons and balancing equations of chemical reactions. But when I had to take a chem lab every semester in college, I had to rethink this choice. I loved the fact that different chemical processes involving fires or acids or whatever could bring about a brand new chemical substance, a transformation. But in the chem lab, lab, I had this terrible rate of success. I thought I was following all the directions, but I only got the expected results about half the time. It was very frustrating, kind of like being in the kitchen. Ironically, I dropped chemistry because I couldn't control it. I couldn't succeed at it. Well, just like chem lab in college for me, when we are in God's chem lab, we are the substance being worked upon. We are not the agent of change. We are no more in control of the process of transformation than the gold in the fire. But we can trust that God's crucible of suffering does indeed bring about a miraculous transformation. Peter tells us that God's end goal is that our faith would be strengthened and refined. At the end of this life, by God's grace, our faith will be even more precious than refined gold because it is eternal. It is imperishable. Our faith will not be burned up when the heavens and the earth are remade. We'd like to think don't we, that we are in control of the dial on our faith, that we could just turn it up as needed. But the very nature of faith is opposed to this mindset. Faith is not our achievement, but trust in God's achievement. 
faith involves trusting that the Lord, in fact, will fight for us, and we have only to be silent. In the words of one of my favorite hymns, How Firm a Foundation, when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The flame doesn't feel great, but it leaves no lasting damage. Our trials will only burn away our self-confidence and our self-reliance and all the illusions of self-made reality, and they will drive us to our Savior. Faith involves leaning back, resting from our works in the everlasting arms of God, trusting in his character of mercy as he has displayed this character throughout his past action on our behalf, as he promises to continue to display it towards us in our future. And indeed, in his letter, Peter desires the glorious future of the Christian to shine backwards through human history, to shed its light upon the dark struggles of this present age. God is the one who keeps who guards our faith, even as he is the one who guards our future inheritance as his adopted sons and daughters. In verse 4, we hear Peter describe our inheritance as imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. The Old Testament people of God had an inheritance there in the promised land in Canaan, Each family was given their own plot of land to hold on to throughout all their generations. And yet because of their persistent and unrepentant sin of idolatry, Israel tragically lost their inheritance when they went into exile. God allowed this to happen. And I suspect, and scholars will say, that he allowed this to happen in order to show that that inheritance was temporal, that that inheritance merely pointed towards the greater eternal inheritance that is present for the New Testament people of God. Indeed, our inheritance is present to us in Revelation. In the book of Revelation, the Apostle John sees a vision of that very, that very tangible inheritance, a new heavens and a new earth with a holy city descending from heaven, a city where God will dwell with his people for all eternity. This inheritance involves the reversal of the curse of sin. No more tears, no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Truly, heaven is a wonderful place filled with glory and grace. I want to go there. And heaven is specifically that place where God himself is enthroned. And this is why the place of heaven seems movable throughout scripture, because it exists primarily surrounding the very presence of God. If heaven really is the place primarily where God is present, then heaven uh, is really God himself. We could say that our inheritance is not so much a random abstracted place apart from God. Rather, God himself is our very inheritance. Just as he was in fact the true inheritance of the people of Israel, there's even one tribe, the Levites, who are not given land in Canaan, but instead God told them, I am your portion and your inheritance. 
King David also recognizes that his true inheritance has to do with the Lord God himself. He wrote in Psalm 16, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Our inheritance is Jesus Christ himself. And Peter reminds us that this inheritance is indestructible. Three related words in the negative show that this Christian inheritance cannot be destroyed. Our relationship with God through Jesus Christ cannot be assaulted from outside of us. It is imperishable. And we ourselves cannot spoil it through our own sin. It is undefiled. And it cannot either be parched by the drought of God's judgment, unlike the land of Canaan. Our inheritance is unfading. What good news! Our sin cannot jeopardize our standing with God. Our sin cannot jeopardize our future inheritance. And so in Jesus Christ, we have that sure and certain hope, what Peter even refers to as a living hope. And this living hope is real to us because at this very moment, right now tonight, on April 15th, the very flesh of Jesus Christ, the one who died and rose again, is seated now, right now in this moment, at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. Jesus' raised body is the first fruits of the harvest of the resurrection of the dead. We will be alive at the last day because Jesus is alive today. In him, now, even on this side of heaven, we are more alive than we ever would be without him. Our future reality is secure in him. Well then, what do we have to lose? If, as Peter says, our inheritance is imperishable, if, as Paul says, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, if God is actually testing us, refining us, and purifying us, only to make us even more precious in his sight, then what are we afraid of? God ultimately will deliver us out of the sufferings of this life. And he might, maybe he will also deliver us from our suffering. Now we pray and ask that, that we would no longer have backache or minor depression, the loneliness that plagues us, a cancer that won't go away, financial loss just around the corner, the winds of change, the suffering of singleness, or a painful marriage. But even if God doesn't deliver us from all of these sufferings, by his grace, we know that in the midst of them, he will strengthen our faith and he will comfort our hearts with his great love for us. So back to the persecuted church. When I have been faithful to pray for the persecuted church, which I wish would be more often and more consistent than it is, but when I have been faithful in doing this, I notice the trend. Those Christians in the Middle East, those Christians who are suffering in Eritrea, the Christians in China or Myanmar or um, North Korea, they, they almost never ask to be delivered out of their suffering. They almost never ask not to come to the point of trial. But they actually ask, um, not that they would be safe or protected from the danger, but they ask for strength. They ask for the strength to hold fast to the Christian faith in the midst of whatever trials come their way as a result of bearing the name of Christ. 
I wish that my faith was that strong. Maybe you, like me, say the words of the man in Scripture at the foot of the Mount of Transfiguration. I believe. Help my unbelief. My faith sometimes feels like a bruised reed or a flickering wick, but I trust that Jesus is true to his word and he will not extinguish it. I take courage, not in my own strength, but in the strength of my Savior as I'm rooted on his past work on my behalf and as I look ahead to my sure and certain hope, my living hope, the hope of my future with him. Remember, Christians, we are bought with the same blood of Jesus as those great martyrs of the Christian faith. We have the same loving Father. We are filled with the same Holy Spirit who causes us to persevere. God, even now, is doing the same work in us that he is doing in them as he tests, refines, purifies, and strengthens our faith. God is faithful, and he will do it. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.